Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gapfest for May the 10th, 2018. The Is Every Lawyer in New York a Crook edition? I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am joined from New Haven by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS This Morning from New York City. Hello, John. Salutations. On this week's Gabfest, the president trashes the Iran nuclear deal. Are we going to war with Tehran? Then the weird new charges enveloping, engulfing Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, involving incredibly suspicious looking payoff from a Russian oligarch and a bunch of other payoffs as well. And then yet another sleazeball New York lawyer, the spectacular fall of New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman exposed as a domestic abuser. I'm not sure if that's the right term. Is that the right term? I think that's fine. an abuser. He's sure an abuser. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we had a live show last week in St. Louis. It was really fun. And I'm glad to say we're going to have another live show coming up at the Keswick Theater in Glenside, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia on July 18th, which is a what night is that? Probably a Wednesday. Wednesday. A Wednesday, July 18th at 730. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. There's going to be a pre-show cocktail hour with us for a limited number of people who purchase the early ticket package and come have a drink with us. That will be really fun. Slate Plus members get 30% off tickets to the show. Come see us in Philly on July 18th. It is, it is Emily's, you know, she's a hometown girl. She, we have to do a good show, put on a put on face for Emily. That's right. In Philly. And especially because my basketball team lost to the Boston Celtics, my children and husband's team last night. Huh. That's that's why we should put on a good show. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. W- and also th- because... Oh, come I was, on. I, I was thinking it was because, like, your, you know, a couple of your sisters, your parents might be in the audience. That's true, just your true, old too. High school, no, like, a lot of your old high school crushes right might be there who want, who want, you know, you just need to show off before the old high school crushes or before the, <laughs> the mean girls who were always lorded it over you. You want to put on a great show in front of them. Come on. Okay, but also the 76ers. Let's mourn them Also together. the 76ers. Anyway, July 18th at the Keswick Theater, slate.com slash live for tickets. Can't wait to see you there. President Trump announced Tuesday that the United States will withdraw from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the agreement forged by the U.S. and other major powers, including the EU, Russia, and China, to restrain and monitor Iran's nuclear program for 10, 15, 20 years, the exact duration sort of stretches, depending on which part of it you're talking about, while ending or easing international sanctions on Iran and returning billions in frozen assets that that we've kept of Iran's and other countries have kept of Iran's. Trump's announcement was met with, I would say, a massive sigh of disappointment in much of the world. France had practically begged him to stay in. Iran's supreme leader, 
uh, Khamenei declared that the U.S. could not be trusted. We are joined to talk about this diplomatic flurry by Max Fisher, who writes the interpreter column for the New York Times. He has been writing about the collapse of the Iran deal and its implications for U.S. foreign policy. Hello, Max. Welcome to the GabFest. Hey, guys. So what is likely to happen now that the U.S. has pulled out of this deal? I mean, there's no American strategy that has been articulated or planned. So if we assume that kind of we just project out the last 24 hours out into the future, there are two basic outcomes in the short term that are kind of unclear. And then there's like a long term, very certain set of outcomes in the short term. The one possibility that the Iranians and the Europeans and all the other parties to this agreement are trying to hold in place is basically keep the deal without the United States. Um, And that, at least in theory, is not impossible. Um, The United States is going to reimpose sanctions on Iran, but American sanctions were actually never the really tough ones. It was the one from European countries, from the UN Security Council, and from Asian countries that we basically asked as a favor to limit trade with Iran. All of that came away with the JCPOA. It's going to stay away. Um, And the Iranians are saying that they're going to continue to stick with the agreement. But the big issue that that sets up is that, you know, the Trump administration saw this coming and he knew that the Europeans and the Iranians were basically just going to ignore their exit. So what they're threatening to do now is to impose what are called um, secondary sanctions against any entity that does business with the Iranian banks and institutions we're targeting, which sounds like a drag technical matter, but what that actually means in plain English is that we're going to start sanctioning the Europeans, which is actually as crazy and extreme as it sounds. And we're already threatening to cut off a Airbus deal that is worth about $22 billion that has obviously got Airbus executives and European leaders pretty upset. The American ambassador to Germany yesterday basically threatened any German company that continues to do business in Iran, saying that they were going to face American secondary sanctions. Nothing like that has ever happened before. So it's really hard to tell where that's going to go. But even if the European and Iranian plan works, it's going to introduce this enormous economic conflict between the Europeans and the Americans and hurt, you know, at least the American and European economies by creating this distance between them. The other version, the one that the Trump administration is really hoping for, is that they will succeed in killing the deal outright and basically forcing European companies not to do business in Iran just by creating enough uncertainty that they'll say, ah, it's not worth it. We're not going to invest in the Iranian economy. Business doesn't materialize. The Iranians say, we're not getting our end of this agreement, so screw it. We're going to continue on the nuclear development and enrichment that we were doing before the deal was signed. They violate the deal, which, you know, they would be within their rights of doing because the Americans walked away first. And we end up back where we were um, in 2015 with the Iranians racing pretty quickly towards a nuclear capability, except now they would be much closer because they have technical know-how and also their missile programs would be a lot more advanced. So it's hard to see how that's a win, but it's definitely we're headed to one of those two. 
Max, one of the things that I find so distressing about all of this is, you know, as far as anyone can tell, and it seems like actually we can tell quite a lot, the Iranians were doing exactly what they said they would do. They were fulfilling their end of the bargain in terms of the way in which they were stopping their nuclear program. And it seems like it's the Iranians economically who probably stand to lose the most here and that the moderate leader of Iran, um, you know, as the New York Times said when the deal um, fell apart – that he looks like a fool and that that's going to weaken the forces in Iran that are for moderation that want to open up to the West. The Trump administration is saying, no, no, it's all good. Regime change. Um, We're going to topple the hardliners. What do you think about those claims? I mean, we tried this exact playbook once before in 2002 with North Korea. And it was actually it was some of the same um, administration officials then that are kind of pushing the Iran policy now. John Bolton was a really big architect of this. We walked away from a nuclear deal that we had with North Korea. And North Korea was um, was cheating a little bit around the margins in a way that the Iranians are not here. The Iranians are, everybody says, complying with um, every aspect of this deal. But the kind of American argument that the Bush administration was making is that this government is you know, in North Korea is not one that we can ever trust. It's one that's implacably hostile to the United States. So what we have to do is to walk away from a deal that will limit their program and instead, you know, impose maximum pressure to destroy the government. But that didn't work. Um, It's actually hard to point to really any example in history where economic sanctions, especially ones imposed just by the United States, lead a government to collapse. Instead, what it tends to do is make that government feel embattled, empower the people in that government that say, you know, we have to prepare for the possibility of a war rather than emphasizing diplomacy and also create a real sense of threat, which is exactly what North Korea did. They went ahead and developed a much more sophisticated nuclear and missile program than the one they had before the deal. Um, And they're now using that to great effect to compel us to the negotiating table. And that sure seems like where we would end up pushing Iran. Max, you you wrote about, I think, two really significant uh, long-term issues that arise from the, the joint action on Iran and North Korea this week. One is that there's a message for the world that the United States can only be trusted to abide by agreements that the current president has met or has made, and that mm-hmm. and that therefore, uh, especially in the absence of an ability to actually pass treaties, the Senate seemed to have lost its ability to pass treaties, that the, the idea of getting a two-thirds approval of a treaty these days seems far-fetched, if not impossible, that given that, that international agreements have no long-term weight with the United States, and President Trump has just validated that by withdrawing from one. Or, and also withdrawing from Paris, too, the climate accords. And then secondly, this notion that Iran was playing by the rules, restraining its program, and now it's getting screwed, whereas North Korea, which was ignoring kind of the rules, building the nuclear weapons, is getting mm-hmm. a summit and negotiations. What, what are the kind of two, uh, what are the long-term implications of those two, two facts? Right. And I, I mean, this thing about the United States now saying our policy is that any international agreement is only enforced through the next presidential election. It's really easy to understate how seriously that is taken abroad. Um, I I mean, Brian Hook, who's a senior State Department official, he came out and explicitly said this. He said the JCPOA was an agreement signed by an administration that is no longer here. So we don't take it as seriously. 
Um, and other countries hear that, especially because the way that these agreements work is that, you know, I mean, like people always talk about, oh, how could you sign an agreement with Iran? How could you trust them? Well, we don't. The agreement assumes that they're going to lie and imposes all these inspections built around that assumption. But what the agreements do assume is that the United States is going to stick to its word. These agreements never have provisions built in that say, well, what if the Americans cheat or, you know, their domestic politics become really volatile and it turns out that they don't follow international agreements anymore because that is not an assumption that people have had to operate on. But, I mean, we've given them so many data points now suggesting that that is in fact the case and not just during the Trump administration that I really do think, starting with this North Korea agreement, you're starting, you're going to see that built into how countries deal with us, that they're going to assume, first of all, any agreement you make is only good for a few years, so I'm only going to offer concessions that are good for a few years. And second of all, that I have to assume you're going to cheat, you know, violate, break it off, and then become an overwhelming military threat to my country. It's easy for us to forget how threatening we look to the rest of the world because of how much more powerful we are. I think we're going to see that with North Korea. I'm sure we'll see them offer to give things up, maybe some of their ICBMs, you know, missile facilities, but not in a way that permanently dismantles things the way that Iran did. I mean, that you can only break that once, which we have just done, and ask a country to do that again. Max, in that context about North Korea, something that just struck me, and I wondered if you had a reaction on on Thursday morning with the return of three Americans. The president said very warm things about Kim Jong-un. Vice President Mike Pence did the round of the morning broadcast shows, said very nice things about the North Korean leader. And then, of course, you had the secretary of state meeting with Kim Jong-un and the picture looked like, you know, what we might expect from a cheery meeting with an old-fashioned U.S. ally. Lots of smiles, lots of deference. We're a long way from Rocket Man and Fire and Fury. Mm-hmm. What do you make of all that? I mean, I think on some level that that's effective diplomacy. The case that the North Koreans have always had in mind is Mao and Nixon. And that's, that's what they want mm-hmm. to reproduce. So I think it's not a mistake that you're seeing symbolism out of these that look very similar. And it's not a mistake that they're asking for one-on-one meetings, which is what Mao got with Nixon, right? Mao didn't want to meet him, Nixon, and Khrushchev. One-on-one to show that China was, you know, a peer of the United States. That's what North Korea is pushing for. If that brings huge dividends and concessions, then, I don't know, that seems like smart, effective diplomacy to me. But Mm -hmm. the downside is that if we give him all of this symbolic imagery at the front end without getting big concessions or promises in return, which other than these prisoners so far we have not, then we've given away what is one of our biggest one-time negotiating chips without uh, making sure we got something back. One thing I wonder, looking ahead to the North Korean negotiations, it just seems like Trump is going to be incredibly eager to declare victory no matter what, that this is going to be Mm -hmm. the deal that he did, the good deal, the only good deal. And I just wonder how that dynamic plays into um, these negotiations as we anticipate them starting, Max. Right. No, I think that's a great point. And that's why you hear when you talk to former diplomats about the way that these talks are being structured, they are just pulling their hair out because the way that this is supposed to work is that you have months or years of pre-negotiations with low-level officials who don't have anything to lose politically if they, you know, don't come back with something, if they have to, you know, play good cop, bad cop, if they have to walk back, some demand that they make. 
that they can hammer out the agreement. And then you bring in the leaders at the very end. That's always the way that this has worked. But bringing in the leaders at the front end, first of all, introduces a huge amount of volatility to it. Second of all, Trump is, because he's the president and this is so public, really constrained as a negotiator in a way that, you know, whatever low-level State Department, whoever, is not. And like you said, he's built up such enormous expectations for this. There are going to be real political costs for him if he doesn't come back with a good deal. And that's going to be obvious to the North Koreans. So we're already setting the table in a way that privileges them. Max, one very quick final question about this. Do you think that Trump and Trump's advisors in their heart of hearts believe this is the right thing to do or that they sort of believe it's the right thing to do, but they really, A, want to fulfill a campaign promise and B, are engaged in this process of of tearing down all of the previous president's accomplishments? Well, let me, let me answer by telling you what I think and then just because I'm here in Europe, how it's seen and, and maybe that'll be interesting for you. The I mean, what I think in terms of why it's happening, it sure seems like on Trump's part, it's personal animus towards Obama, but also that there have been really significant staffing changes in the White House where you used to have kind of, you know, steady center of the road, more pragmatic foreign policy hands running things who did not want to do this. And now you have more ideological types like John Bolton, who have always wanted to break up agreements like this and were um, a bit more extreme and militaristic in their approach to these kinds of things. So I think it's both of those, and you probably need both of those together. Um, although, again, the fact that there there is no articulated strategy or long-term plan here does give one the impression that it's less about foreign policy per se than about kind of domestic politics or like weird interpersonal issues. In terms of how it's seen here, I actually hear people very little talk about the particulars of Trump or his administration and what might be driving it. And it, I almost always hear it discussed as part of what what people here and, and in Asian allies as well see as a long-term American pattern dating back 20 years. I mean, people are bringing up treaties that I think most Americans, including people in foreign policy, don't even think about the ABM treaty that we backed out of in 2001, the agreed framework in 2002 with North Korea. And people are starting to get the sense that this is not a like one-time Trumpy aberration, but rather this is a kind of true face of America. And this is kind of who we are, which I don't know, it's happening enough that I think it's worth considering that. Max Fisher writes the interpreter column for the New York Times. Max, thanks for coming in. Come back to the GabFest whenever you get the chance. Thanks a lot, Max. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And as you probably know, Slate Plus members get special bonus segments on the GabFest and other podcasts. And our bonus segment for Slate Plus members today, we are going to talk about what words and phrases should be banned from the English language, banned from common speech. I'm very excited for this topic. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. It's just $35 a year, and you get that bonus segment and so many other great bonus segments. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like 
Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, received half a million dollars from a shady Russian oligarch shortly after paying off Stormy Daniels. Then he also received millions of other dollars from a pharmaceutical company, Novartis, from AT&T, from a Korean arms manufacturer, I think, presumably as part of some sort of pay-for-play scheme in 2017 to get access to the president. We have been reminded this week that the potential corruption involving Trump's inner circle potentially enormous, that we don't know a lot about it. It's not visible to us often and suddenly became visible. And it seems outrageous, but it's also really complicated and hard to follow. So, Emily, what was shocking, if anything, uh, about the revelation coming from Michael Avenatti, who's Stormy Daniels, Stephanie Clifford's lawyer? What was so shocking about his revelation that that Cohen's imaginary company, Essential Consulting, was receiving millions of dollars from weird sources, including Russian oligarchs and companies with business in front of the Trump administration. All right. I'm going to define shocking as like should be surprising, even if it's not. And in that vein, I think what is riveting here is the notion that the very same shell company Cohen set up to pay off Stormy Daniels was also raking in money from at least one company controlled by or invested heavily in by this Russian oligarch, this, you know, new character in our drama whose name is not Victor Vexelberg. Yeah. Him. Right. I'm having trouble. There are just so many proper nouns and names to keep track of. Um, it's starting to... I know. It's totally Vexelberging. <laughs> Vexelberging? Yeah. Anyway, I, that part is um, amazing and interesting. And it just makes me want to know where else this is going to go. I feel like I'm groping blindly right now where there are these various... That's the Eric Schneiderman <laughs> part of the show. Okay. Boo! Um, <laughs> I, I feel confused or or at least like I can't see all the different pieces of this and how they fit together. Do you guys have that feeling, too? Yes. If for no other reason, then uh, one detail that struck me was that the special counsel knew about these payments to companies back in November. And so therefore, presumably the Vexelberg ones. And this a, this hasn't leaked till now. The second point is he knew about all that. The special counsel did and still did the no knock. um sweep of the house hotel and office which means whatever they were going for there was even more interesting more potentially explosive because of the way it was done and because he already knew this stuff about the special payments that were made so it suggests wow there must really be some other big big thing out there and that's just one new rivulet of this otherwise 
vast story that has, uh, you know, flows into all kinds of different areas. The well, we should point out, though, that it wasn't Mueller's team that did the no knock. That was a, it's a whole separate set of prosecutors. So right. So, but he so, gave them the information to create the no knock. Right. I mean, Emily, just to go back to it, what I think you were uh, your when you were using shocking and, and kind of uh, air quotes there. It is, as you guys may remember, I'm sort of less exercised about corruption um, than than I think you guys are. Probably most of our listeners are that, you know, whatever Trump's getting rich, he's a businessman, he's shady and that's never felt to me like the worst thing in the world but there's just so much of it there's so much of this this unbelievable you know self-dealing and backdoor dealing uh well, there graft, was this exactly the things the, that drain the swamp yeah. was supposed to stand yeah, there's yeah. i mean just to just to, to, just to the one one that we didn't even talk about in the last couple of weeks is that there's this episode with cutter which has been under a huge amount of diplomatic pressure and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's gotten on the wrong side of the Saudis and gotten on the wrong side of Jared Kushner. And Qatar just bought an apartment very ostentatiously in public. They just bought a $5 million apartment building, apartment in one of Trump's buildings. They just basically gave $5 million directly to a Trump property and made it very publicly known that they were doing that. And, and that's a kind, the kind of buying of influence is so disturbing in a way that I didn't know that I well, could get disturbed by right, it. So we've I, even I am disturbed by it. Influence peddling is usually more subtle than this. But according to the reporting, Michael Cohen was basically going around saying, hey, I can get you access and influence. And these companies were desperate to find some inroads to a mercurial and unknown and disruptive president. What is so central, it seems to me, about this point is the one you're making, which is he was all of those things, not of Washington, not familiar, disruptive, impulsive. And those were the qualities that were supposed to be aligned with what he actually said, which is that he was going to drain the swamp. And so they are and so they are engaging in high level, graduate level swamp behavior in buying off his close uh, attorney for the purposes of of trying to get access to him. And so the question is, did Michael Cohen not believe the stuff that the president said in his campaign? Because if you believe that the candidate really believed these things, then you wouldn't dare engage in this kind of behavior, right? Because you would be offending the person with whom you were so close. Or he thought that the president wasn't really serious when he said all of that. And then finally, I'd like to raise this question. Should AT&T and Novartis and the other uh, anybody else feel shame for having engaged in these uh, behaviors or – are they doing exactly what they are supposed to do, which is maximizing shareholder value by playing the system uh, by the well-known rules that it exists? Because obviously there's an entire system of lobbying where this is uh, where this would be considered of a, of a fashion sort of best practices as opposed to something uh, shady. Yeah, that's a good question. I think actually, again, because maybe I'm a cynical person, I think what AT&T and Novartis did is totally okay by the standards of 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 the day that it's that it's their responsibility to try to whatever way they can whatever legal way they can influence the president and influence the administration and if they if they, they saw this as a way to get access what's wrong is that we should have people in public service who reject it who refuse those blandishments and we don't right. we have people in public service who 
actively are seeking it. And President Trump has made it known that he wants essentially to be or he doesn't care if people in his circle are being bribed. And he himself wants to get the benefits of of public service in his pocket. So also, what about, I mean, Cohen was not in public service, right? Part of what was going on here was that he had been passed over. He didn't get a job in the administration. And he was going to cash in on his relationship with the president in a different way. So now we have this conversation, okay, which laws did he break? It seems like he broke some law here and that what 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 law did he break well there's money laundering there's campaign finance violations um and i also feel like there's no reason to think that the payments coming into this particular shell corporation are the only ones to michael cohen in the administration since the trump administration started that seems unlikely doesn't it yes <laughs> it seems very unlikely it seems exceptionally unlikely Emily, do you think there that anything materially has changed for the legal cases this week that you that you can tell superficially? I mean, we we're of course sure that Mueller and his investigators are looking at different facts and things than we're looking at, but just from what's known publicly. That interested me. I mean, I do think Michael Cohen is in more trouble than we knew before. Not that he wasn't in any trouble, but it just seems like the just the plot is thickening around him as a figure. And given how tied he is to Trump, um, that seems significant. Also, of course, there are the kind of still unresolved accusations that he was having meetings with people in the Russian government or intelligence services, you know, in that summer of what was that 2016, that's still sort of floating out there, those steel dossier allegations. And that could, of course, connect Cohen into the Russia investigation, which leads me to my next question. If they're connected, why did Mueller refer out the Cohen investigation to the Southern District of New York to this other set of prosecutors? I mean, I thought that was a smart move when Mueller made it because it means there's a U.S. attorney's office involved in this and it takes some of the political heat away from Mueller and spreads it out. And it could be that, you know, the they can bisect this, right? I mean, they, prosecutors can talk to each other. The Southern District can do the, like, corruption money laundering campaign finance part, and they can hand the rest back to Mueller. But it is interesting that these stories seem like they could connect, and yet they're divided in terms of which prosecutors are in charge. Did you guys see this crazy, amazing piece, which I think was in New York Magazine, the most exciting piece I read this week. I am not a person who believes in conspiracy theories. Oh, the Jonathan Shait crazy conspiracy theory. And crazy yet plausible. Basically, is that the $1.6 million payoff that was made to a, apparently to a Playboy playmate who had an abortion after having an affair with a random Republican fundraiser named Elliot Broidy, a person no one had ever heard of beforehand and no one will ever hear from again, that Broidy apparently, using Cohen, funneled $1.6 million to this, this playmate who'd had an affair with him to by her silence, that this maybe wasn't a payment from Broidy, but a payment from Trump. Uh, the notable facts here is that the names in the the names in the deal with the playmate are the same names that were used in the Stormy Daniels deal. It was the same LLC that's used to pay it off. No one had ever heard of Broidy. Trump obviously has a history with playmates. Broidy has no history at all of this kind of behavior. It's not clear why Broidy would want to pay that much money to to clear his name. It's and finally, that Brody had a lot of government business, a lot of opportunity to get government contracts that he was waiting for and which he got after all this 
payments went through, suggesting that maybe he took a fall in exchange for getting some better deal later. Did you say the part um, about how he had actually bribed um, a government official in a related way involving his girlfriend and hush money before? <laughs> also that. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of weird side evidence. Who knows? Did he bring in the John Edwards? Um... Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's, that's what Edwards fair. tried to do, too. Yeah. Yeah. This um, this story was written by Paul Campos. It's a it's a crazy story. And and also there's the the fact that Bannon told Michael Wolf there are probably I think something like hundred he I think I think this is right that Bannon told Wolf there are probably hundreds of women's being women being paid off, suggesting that that Daniels probably wasn't the only woman being paid off. And given that this is Cohen, this is the same time period, it's the same mo. This woman quite possibly is uh, is also a a Trump associate. Can I ask a sort of journalistic methodological question? That was like way too many syllables. So I also found myself intrigued and sucked into the story after resisting reading it because it is entirely speculative. And I sort of feel like, look, maybe it'll be true. But I wonder if it verges on the kind of irresponsible, conspiracy-driven thinking on the left that the left is so scornful of on the right. Yep. Yep, I think that's fair. Having said that, do we think not having said that, <laughs> having uh, acknowledged do that, we, do we think? Well, I mean, this is not this is an unrelated thought, but do, doesn't one assume that uh, in the materials that have been picked up by investigators that this that the that the truth of the matter would be uh, verifiable or could be identified, and that basically the answer to these questions are in somebody's hands right Probably. now? Probably. I mean, assuming those communications between Cohen and Broidy and whoever else were in the records that were seized in the raid of Cohen's office, I suppose you could think these people would cover their tracks and, you know, destroy their communications. We'll see. Yeah. Although you'd think, but then again... But then again... He had 16, burner fo- 16 phones, so things weren't destroyed... Uh, the way you might expect. Um, yeah, that it's it's uh. It, but I but I I, I don't want to go too quickly past uh, the the good point about you know engaging in conspiracy theories. Yep. I just feel like I'm sort of losing my own compass to some degree because if something is plausible and you can kind of create this neat. Like, it wasn't as if Paul Campos had no uh, leg to stand on. Yeah. Well, the problem is also there's been so many lies told to us and so many so many things in which it's turned out that the the conspiracy has been kind of true. We should have learned at least from John Edwards that turns out even seemingly squeaky clean politicians with no specific history of lying outside of the normal tradecraft of politics can engage in bald-faced lies and create baroque cover-up attempts and that with President Trump, who the Washington Post has cataloged as having said 3,000 things that are in one variant or another dissembling to all the way to lie that 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 the press should change its way of thinking about things because it's in a new atmosphere and it's we're in the process of figuring out the new standards while still trying to do the assessing with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details 
The New York Attorney General fell hard and fast on Monday. That day, the fearsome journalistic duo of Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer, which as an aside, can you imagine a more terrifying phone call to get than Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer on the line? Wow, (laughs) that would be terrifying. They published a blockbuster piece in The New Yorker detailing at least four cases of violence against women by Eric Schneiderman, often in a sexual context. According to the piece, Schneiderman, a Democrat and a politician with great ambitions, often while drunk, would slap and choke girlfriends, women he was dating. He would belittle them with abusive language. He called one his brown slave, allegedly. Schneiderman resigned almost instantaneously denounced by practically everyone who could denounce him, including every Democratic politician in the state. One woman in the piece had mentioned her hesitancy to to report Schneiderman's uh, disgusting criminal behavior because he was so valuable to Democrats. But once he was once this story was out and, and more or less accepted as truth, he was done and dusted in moments Emily, why was he gone so fast? This was the, this was definitely the quickest exit I think we've seen of anybody. Even I think Spitzer Spitzer took a couple of days. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know if you guys were like online watching in real time, but it did seem amazingly fast. You know, first of all, Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow are formidable, and they had um, nailed down the details. It just seemed credible, and also the women were speaking in this set of specific there were lots of specific details and it had this sense of like more in sorrow than in anger it wasn't like they had an axe to grind it was almost like as you said at least one of them was kind of reluctant to come forward and then i think the second part of this is just the me too movement and the desire particularly of liberals to be on the right side of it and to me it was um reassuring that Eric Schneiderman indeed is expendable as basically like everybody should be expendable if they behave in an abominable fashion. And I don't know what to make of the, you know, chasm between (laughs) these avowedly outwardly feminist champions like Schneiderman, and we can put Harvey Weinstein in this category, and then this private behavior, which seems utterly at odds with that. That seems like Schneiderman's going to have to go figure that out with his psychiatrist. Um, But it's important that everybody be held to a standard where you're not allowed to hit people who don't want to get hit. John, we talked about Eric Greitens last week, the governor of Missouri, who's also subject of extremely credible accusations of sexual violence as well as blackmail. Greitens is a Republican. He is remains in office, although there are certainly Republicans who wish he didn't. Why? Well, there, yeah. Why is there a double standard? Is there are there two different forms of behavior here between the parties, or or is that just cherry picking to to say there is? It depends because there's the standard that is applied from the outside. And then there's the standard felt from the inside, which is a which I guess contributes to the sense of shame or not shame. And then I was trying to think if a Republican politician were caught having had an abortion or paid for an abortion, whether that would change the internal assessment of shame. It's not shame. It's 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 viability within your own party. We've seen the swift departure of Republican politicians who were engaged with abortion with their dalliances. So there. So you're saying that there are presumably are sins that conservatives and Republicans would find as abhorrent as Democrats are finding uh, this sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual violence. 
but it's not but it's not necessarily the same sins. It's a different set of sins. And abortion I think it's abortion would be one of them. It, it doesn't mean that they don't care about them at all. It just ma- it's just a question of whether again this combined thing whether it's both they care enough to kick somebody out of office or initiate the the messy proceedings to do so whether they initiate that and whether the penalty is is large enough for a politician to want to resign emily so this is the what shinerman's accused of is is violence he's not really he's not been accused of any sort of sexual harassment in the office or or and he's not even being really being accused of lechery the problem is the violence. And then he tried to sort of confuse the picture by talking about role play. But there was nothing consensual sounding or role play like in the accounts of these women. And it's really important to think keep those things separate. Do you guys think there is something wrong with New York? So that that's one of the lines <laughs> that people are making. It's a, it's a line that people are doing. It's like, oh, you know, Spitzer, Wiener, Schneiderman. There's something in the water. Or is it just that there's an abundance of reporters and journalists, a relatively open culture in the state? One of the amazing facts I found in the New Yorker story was that one of the women was helped in moving out of Schneiderman's apartment by another New Yorker writer. Yeah. There's so much more interplay between the journalistic world and the political world that allows the possibility of being caught, maybe. Is that – or is it just that New Yorkers are are, – Sybarites and 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 villains. I don't think it's either of those things. I think that these are men with enormous egos. I mean, just I did a little bit of reporting relating to Schneiderman's office a couple of years ago, and I got that message loud and clear. And it's certainly true of Wiener and Spitzer. And so there is a way in which the fact that the city is larger than life, or the state, I guess, um, it's in another way, although not quite, can attract men with these like even bigger egos and they're i to me that's like a common thread here and it's obviously not specific to new york i mean greitens john edwards we can come up with lots of other examples bill clinton john do you think that this case has any long-term political impact no does it affect anything against yeah there is going to be an interesting election though in november i mean there's going to be a six-month interim appointment i should also say the woman who has the job right now barbara underwood is an uber competent lawyer um new york state's lucky to have her but there is like she clerked for your granddad yes she worked for clerk for my grandfather there is this interesting interplay going on and there are opportunities that are opening up i mean this is a big job someone's going to get to fill it and it may very well be a woman there are a few um qualified women who have signaled their interest Let's go to cocktail chatter. Not really appropriate to make a good cocktail joke, given the context of Schneiderman. So I will not. When you're having when a we're talking about drunken an, rages, it does. You're having seem... a non-alcoholic beverage, a a maybe just a a nice glass of juice, Emily. <laughs> nice glass of juice. I don't actually. What drink will you be juice. chattering about? I'm not you a don't juice person. How about iced tea? Why wouldn't you drink juice? Juice is so good. Really? Huh. That's interesting. I don't have oh some great feeling about juice at all. Um, I wanted to chatter about this wonderfully amazing Rube Goldberg contraption video that may be old. I may be the last person who noticed it on the internet, but I watched it this week and it was so fun. It's by Joseph Hersher. He makes comical chain reaction machines. Um, and his it's called Joseph's Machines, his outfit. Um, and it 
<laughs> just is whimsical and delightful, involves a baby, an iPhone, butter melting, the delivery of a piece of cake. It just has all these lovely touches. We will put up a link to it. If you have not already watched it, you should. It's amazing. It's all basically in his kitchen or some kitchen, kitchen-like place. The baby's behavior is incredible. I, my question to you guys is, do you think that the uh, that the attraction to Rube Goldberg machines is wired into the DNA? That if you showed a Rube Goldberg machine to any person on Earth, they would instinctively understand how amazing and cool it is, or or is it a is it a is it a learned behavior? I kind of go with the universal on this. Also, I bet you a lot of monkeys would appreciate it too. It just seems like something that a a bonobo or a chimp, an ape, would also really groove to. Isn't it possible there's a third option, which is that it's only that it's a learned behavior for some people who like that kind of stuff. Do you think there are um, people who don't like Rube Goldberg machines? Oh, I totally do. No I way. totally think there are people who would look at that and think like this is boring. Oh who my cares god. If the thing goes to the thing. The- no, I know, but that's because we're into process and the wonder and joy that comes from quirky things. I totally think there are people who would look at it and be just like well, who cares if the all thing right. spills? Pro- I, all right. I'm interested if anyone is willing to own up to being such a person, just like a little bit like. <laughs> well, own, our own, audience is likely to not owning, be. But, you know, some of them, some of them are perverse people. Any Anybody out there who's an audi- in the audience who doesn't like Rube Goldberg machines and has a case against them, I would be interested. Please, please uh, oh. tweet at us at at Slate Gabfest. Uh, also, if I may just say, I. And you can shoot me down if I'm, uh, I know you will. But I feel like in this case, the Rube Goldberginess of this is actually at a higher level than the normal one. It's not just a thing crashes into a thing. It's that it it has a kind of whimsy and cleverness in the way that it proceeds through its machinations that uh, that I found really particularly. So delightful. does that mean that even um, if you don't normally like Rube Goldberg contraptions, you would like this one or that it would seem kind of well, twee and over the top to you if you are anti generally? Oh, well, this is also further uh, further things to pose to our audience. I guess what I would say is if you are hearing this conversation and you're like, oh, I got to check that out someday because I'm mildly interested in it, I would suggest that perhaps it's worth checking out even before, you know, you might forget about it because it's really quite uh, it's quite clever and whimsical. John, what is your chatter? My chatter was um, inspired by the extraordinary sale of the art collection from the Rockefeller, the David Rockefeller art collection that went on sale this week and which there were... Um, I picked up a few uh, pieces. What did you get? Yeah. Yeah. Monet's, Manet's, Hopper's, Picasso's. What I was struck by is the age-old question of, you know... Um, artists who toiled in anonymity and struggle and then their pieces. So one of the Monets went for $85 million, I believe. It was a water lily. So that's a lot of simoleons. And it caused me to do some uh, some research. At the end of his life, Monet, who apparently had some uh, renowned while he was living and, and enough money, but in, in 1908, after three years of working on a new set of paintings— And right before they were ready to get packed up in their crates with the straw and the horsehair and sent to Paris for the opening of a new exhibit of his work, he decided that 15 of the canvases just weren't doing it for him. So he took a knife and a paintbrush to the canvases and basically destroyed them. And he decided, my life has been nothing but a failure. And all that's left for me to do is destroy my paintings before I disappear. 
this in addition to the fact that his water lilies, of which there are 250, were totally denigrated and and um, called awful by critics at the time, and it was his failing eyesight was blamed for them. So I guess what I mean, what I feel is that at this point, the dollar value placed in the art market is nuts. But it did remind me that, uh, you know, here Monet thought he wasn't doing very well and and uh, and things have turned out OK for him in life. Well, not for him. He's dead. My chatter is about a fantastic book I just read. Uh, just came out, I think. Uh, it's called Theory of Bastards by Audrey Shulman. If you like Station Eleven or if you like The Road, if you are into post-apocalyptic kind of road movies, post-apocalyptic <laughs> road books – uh, this is the best one yet. It, it's well, it's up where Station Eleven is probably my favorite book I've read in years. This is, that is really such up, a good book. up there. It's, it's a story of a scientific researcher who, who's doing research on bonobos. Speaking of bonobos, which Emily was a minute ago, at a in a in a near future, slightly dystopic near future America, and you know she has an interesting backstory. She has an interesting colleague she's working with, and then there are these bonobos she's working with and trying to study their sexual behavior, develop theories about sexual selection among bonobos, and then and then their kind of things go awry, and she ends up uh, uh, to give away a little bit. She ends up traveling with the bonobos, and it's it's just. You, 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 it's incredible. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Audrey Shulman's Theory of Bastards. It's a weird. It's got a weird title. Weird cover. It doesn't look. It looks like some pretentious English book. The cover doesn't yet, look like a pretentious English book. It looks kind of trashy. I just bought it. Yeah, it looks. Yeah, it looks trashy. It, it doesn't. The cover. The cover and the title are not a match for what is in there. The book is. The book is beautifully written and it's just really thoughtful and and incredibly gripping. The last half you you know i'd stopped watching all the tv shows i was watching just to tear through it that is our show for today gabfest is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is izzy road you can follow us on twitter at, at slate gabfest and rube goldberg us at, at slate gabfest or go to facebook.com slash gabfest and facebook your thoughts on rube goldberg machines for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. And please come to our Philly show on July 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get those tickets, which will go fast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 